Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of... Woodworking? Yes. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. I'm back. You're back. How was your vacation? Well, it was a work trip, but it was really good. Oh, I thought you went, I thought you like did some personal stuff. No, no, no. We had a uh, conference we had to go to, so. Okay. Had to go talk about furniture. Oh, nice. Really? So it's kind of like a vacation. (laughs) Especially with 40 days off of woodworking, you know? Oh, yeah. Yes. Making up for lost time, though. Yeah. Yep. So anyways, this podcast is intended (laughs) to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we have a Patreon account, and right now we're just we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation, just to try to cover the cost of bringing this podcast. So please go to Patreon.com/slash/WoodshopLife. And I'd also like to say hello to our newest patron, Bill Burkett. Burkle, sorry, Bill. Ugh. Thank you, and we sincerely hope that you give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. So, without any further ado, we. You take the first question. All right. This is from Chuck Lovelady, and he is a repeat question enterer, if that's such a thing. Where do you find the most objective tool reviews? Ooh, that is a really hard one. And the reason why I say that is because a majority of the tool reviews that I've seen are in some way tools that have been sent either to content creators, online woodworkers, uh, whatever you want to call it. And to be honest, a lot of the tools that are even done, tool reviews that are even done in magazines are sent, of course, to those magazines for free to review uh, as objectively as possible. Now, that being said, oftentimes the magazines will get multiple tools to review and sent from those companies. Um, but that's just a really hard one because you have to sort of understand where the bias is coming from, from whatever tool review it, it is that you, uh, that you are ascribing to. And, and the truth is, is no matter what, there is some form of bias in, in whatever tool review. And some of the best tool reviews I've seen have been actually from the magazine. So fine woodworking magazine, um, Believe it or not, Popular Mechanics used to do a lot of tool reviews. I don't know if they still do, but I used to uh, read a lot of their tool reviews. Um, and Wood Magazine and Woodworker's Journal. Uh, but again, that might be a little bit biased because Woodworker's Journal is put out by Rockler. Uh, but they are, uh, as a distributor of a lot of those tools, uh, you know, sometimes don't necessarily want to put negative reviews out there because, well, they are distributors of those tools. And so uh, I, I really do find that the best tool reviews aren't actually tool reviews. It's actually going to the guys that are and, and gals uh, that are using these tools and saying, OK, well, why are you using them? Why did you like them? Would you buy it again? And uh, what would you do differently with this tool if you had the opportunity to? Uh, those are some of the best reviews I've gotten. I know I've gone to you, Guy, and, and I haven't gone to you, Brian, yet, but I've gone to Sean quite a bit with uh, with their objective reviews on things. 
uh, primarily because, well, you guy and Sean have been, before Brian, have been putting in their hard-earned money into buying a lot of those tools. And for that reason, I feel like, really honestly, the best has been for me going to other woodworkers that are kind of either at my skill level or maybe even above. What about you, Brian? What do you, how, how do you make an objective decision on purchasing tools and where do you get your objective tool reviews or is there such a thing? I usually just ask guy what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, I do, but, uh, in all seriousness, the, um, like my local woodworking community. So, I love woodworking, so I like to make friends with other people who love woodworking, and we talk about it together. And a lot of times I'll ask those people, um, you know, say, hey, I'm looking to add this tool. Do you have, do you have, you know, a bandsaw, for example? And if so, what bandsaw do you like? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Um, woodwork, I think woodworking naturally creates community. Um, yeah. so even if you don't have, um, you know, personal friends that, that have a woodworking hobby or passion, there's probably a local woodworking club, um, of people who would love to talk about what they like and don't like about their tools. So, um, that, that's kind of the way I tend to approach it. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything you guys said. I, I don't think there is such a thing as completely objective because everybody, has built-in biases, and that's just human nature. Right. Um, I think the ones I like the most are the ones in the magazines, and believe it or not, I'm going to go to Wood Magazine for that. And the main reason is they do those, they'll do like a thing on sanders, and they'll test 10 different sanders, right. and then they'll put like a, a grid of features and everything else, and you can kind of make your own decision. Yep. And I think that is a really nice way to do it. Um, the thing with, you know, quote unquote influencers like myself, um, we are getting a, a tool for free and you have to take that in consideration. But myself, I've, I've been sent, you know, a lot of stuff for free. And to be really honest with you, I've never put a negative review on my channel. And the reason for that is, is if there's been something that's sent to me that was just junk and I wouldn't recommend somebody buying it, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give it any air. Yeah. yeah. I just wouldn't do a review. And I'd, I'd email the people back and say, I'm sorry, I can't do a positive review of this. So I'm not even going to bother. Right. And that's why you don't see <laughs> negative reviews on my channel because I really like the stuff that I've, I've put on there. Right. So, um, but there are some people on the in the YouTube space that I do trust. There's a lot that I don't. Right. So I, I think that goes both ways. I think one of the things that sort of makes a big difference in, in, in understanding maybe what is a good tool or a bad tool is actually seeing them in use with regards to who that person is, what their skill level is, and what they're using it for. And if you can see yourself using it in the same manner, then maybe in that case, it would be good for you. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, next all question. Right. Brian, it's all you. Okay. This question is from Michael Ernst. And Michael says, hey, guys, love listening to your podcast. I've picked up so much knowledge and uh, really enjoy it. I'm a commercial carpenter 
turned Finnish carpenter and am working on breaking into the fine Finnish and custom built-in furniture world. I hear a lot of talk on forums and social media about buying smaller tools to make more room in your shop. I can see how something like a 52-inch rip fence will take up more room in my in my little pea brain, but it takes as much room to plane and joint a four-foot board on a 72-inch bed joiner and a 15-inch planer as it does on a 46-inch bed joiner and a lunchbox planer with a much smaller footprint. Am I wrong? Should I take this into consideration when buying tools? I'm fortunate to have a 1,000-square-foot shop, so space isn't necessarily at a premium, but I'll also be building large built-in closets and wine rooms and such, so it may get tighter than I think. Thanks for the info. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when buying tools, um, how important is it to try to keep the footprint of the tool size down in order to maximize space in the shop? So um, when I think when I think about it, there are two things. One is mobility of the tools and the impact that that might have on staging big projects as you're working on assembly. So if you have a large built-in closet you want to do and you've got your tools in a fixed position interspersed throughout your shop and you can't get a single eight-foot clear run of space um, because you've got tools, you know, every seven feet, then it may be really hard to stage up that built-in. So um, mobility is good if you think you're going to have to stage that. For me, though, the, maybe the more important thing is dust collection. As I think about shop layout and maximizing space, I want to position my tools to where I can get my dust collection to them in as small of a footprint, footprint as possible. Mm -hmm. Right now, I've got to move a hose from my table saw to my joiner every time I want to switch between those two tools. And it is, even though my workshop is about the size of a, a shipping crate, it's <laughs> it's really, really annoying to have to go do that. So um, I recommend thinking about dust collection to maximize the space in your shop. Guy, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think it's a really good question. It's on a lot of people's minds. Um, for people like myself and you, Brian, and probably we too, yeah. we don't have a thousand square foot to me is a is a dream that's, that's that would crazy. that would effectively double the size of my shop wow. um and plus if it's dedicated i don't have to share it with my wife's car so that's that's quite a bit of shop space that's the equivalent of about a four car garage yeah i i i agree with everything he said you know if you've got an eight foot board it doesn't matter if you're milling it on a on a joiner with a 46 inch bed or one with a 72 inch bed and that's absolutely true. The thing is, though, when you get done with that, it still takes up space. It's a matter of footprint taking right. up the space in the shop. I used to move my stuff around into a – I used to keep everything on one side of the shop. And as I needed it, I would pull it out, hook it up, and have you know just lots and tons of room on both the in-feed and the out-feed. Right. And I thought that was the way to go. And then I finally realized that the majority of the stuff I'm making, I don't need that extra input and output into the machine. So I organized the shop so it was easier to set up and everything was hooked up and ready to go. All I had to do to use the machine was walk up to it and turn it on. Dust mm -hmm. collection, everything, boom, ready to go. 
I felt that was better. There are times, though, when I do have to move some stuff around to get an extra long board going mm -hmm. through one of the machines. It does happen. Yeah. Um, but it's not as frequent as I thought it was going to be. Now, you've got a three-car garage, right, Hui? I do, yeah. Do you, but it, that? do you share that with cars? I do not, um, okay. thankfully. Uh, my wife was very, um, very gracious to allow me to have the garage to myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you said, listen, honey. <laughs> rub it in. Rub this it in. is my garage. It's not yours. Stay out. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and ask her if she said that. <laughs> She's like, uh-uh. No, no, if you I said allowed. that. If you said that. Um, or if I said that, or if she agreed to that kind of language. Uh, I didn't no. say anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't say language. <laughs> or saying it in that manner. Uh, but the, the really big thing is, is when you're not using those tools and having that, like you said, that egress around the tool and having that ability to move around the tool. And particularly uh, when it comes to moving large cabinets, like what he's saying, uh, you're going to see a difference because uh, th those shop tools, regardless if uh, you're able to move them, um, they, they maneuvering around them when they're in place is really the sort of the hard part about it. Now, for me, like for instance, my combo machine, I do like having a little bit extra infeed and outfeed, particularly for long boards. And, and I do uh, deal with big projects. So what I ended up doing is getting the infeed and outfeed extensions for that joiner planer combo. But see, the, the, the benefit of that is that I can take them away the 85% of the time when I don't need it. So maybe consider that. Maybe consider the, the possibility that some of these tools might end up being permanently in place, in which case you may actually like having that smaller footprint so you can move around the tool when you're not needing that extra length on the joiner or planer. And I think those are probably like the two big things is joiner, planer, and uh, uh, table saw is probably what takes the biggest amount of footprint. Maybe mm -hmm. miter saw station if you're into that. My, so. my, my problem isn't necessarily not enough room for the tools or the the in-feed, out-feed of the tools. But if I have to build a big project, mm -hmm. that's where I run into problems. Not with the size of the boards I have to mill, mm -hmm. but as I build it. The assembly. The assembly. Yeah. And I get, I get like half done through it. And I have to be very careful because it takes the, 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 the project can take up more room than my tools do. Yeah. And I don't have the room for it. Yep. So I have to be really careful of the progression that I do things in. Like a, a real good example is when we made kitchen cabinets. Right. As I made the kitchen cabinets, I couldn't keep them in the shop. I had to store them in my front room. Yep. Which my wife said, okay, because they're her kitchen cabinets. But if they weren't her kitchen cabinets, there's no way she would ever say, you know, but, but honey, I'm getting, you know, all this money to make them. She don't care. Yeah. She does. So, she's not going to give up that space. So it's the same thing in your shop. Uh, a couple of projects I've made that are, are too big for the shop I have. So yeah, that's not a thing to consider. Yeah. That's, so. why, that's why I've had to start building my cabinet boxes last on built-ins that I build because they just, it, 
take up so much room. I mean, right now I've got a couple floating shelves and a couple face frames resting up against, resting up against the, the wall in our basement at the foot of the stairs. And I'm just waiting for one of my kids to spill <laughs> on it or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that helps. And I've got the next question, and this comes from Tom Young. And let me, I got my, my things have given me fits over here. Okay. So it says, hey, guys and guy, that's me. I'm building a dining, a dining table for a friend out of walnut and quarter sawn white oak. Hmm. That's, that's a good combination. And I'm starting to think about applying finish. I'm, wonder about, I'm wondering about applying a couple coats of shellac to deepen the grain and follow up with water-based poly for the top coats. After guy, hearing Guy tout the water-based conversion varnish, I'm considering the general finishes products that has catalyst you have to mix in. Is that what you use, Guy? No. As far as the shellac, is that a bad idea? I don't feel confident getting an even coat, especially on the top, using a hand application, so I would like to spray. Does that sound feasible? I also don't want to change the color, just deepen the grain, so what flavor of shellac and cut should I use? Enjoy you guys a lot. My favorite woodworking podcast, Tom from Big Muddy Woodworks. Mm. Tom, I do not use the general finished product. Um, you're talking about a, a catalyzed finish and that typically catalyzed does not require it's not a, a water-based finish if it requires catalyzation the only thing i can think that general finishes used to have they used to have a cross linker that you could put in the polyurethane and the cross linker helped the, the molecules bond together better and gave you a harder finish but they're building the cross linker into their their uh water-based polyurethane right now. What's it called again, We High uh, performance. High performance, yeah. Yeah, they're high performance stuff. So the stuff I use is from Target Products, and it's their water-based conversion virus, and, and it's, it's awesome. Doing a couple coats of shellac is definitely the way to go, and then put that down on top of it. You won't be able to tell between that and, a, and an oil finish or a or a lacquer-based finish. It's very durable, easy to spray, and it's just wonderful. Um, the other question was about what type of shellac. I typically use amber shellac if I'm going to spray water-based top coats because it's going to give it that amber color that you get with oil that everybody likes, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Brian, what do you do? Do you, do you have, do you use shellac or water-based top coats at all on anything? Yeah, usually, usually shellac, but then I'll, I'll typically put, um, I'll typically put like a armor seal over the top of that or polyacrylic. Um, and everything I'm doing is either a wipe on or, or brushed on. Um, for shellac, I'll use the, uh, Zinser products that their uh, seal coat, the so de-waxed, yeah, mm -hmm. de-waxed shellac. And I think that, I don't know if, I think that only comes in one color variant, right? The I don't remember how they describe it, if it's clear or not, you know, really neutral. Or it gives it more of an amber. Yeah. But I don't, but I don't think they, I don't think they identify it as, as amber, but it definitely 
will darken darken the um, the wood. Um, we what about you? So uh, just to talk about the general finishes conversion varnish that that is actually a water at least that's what it says on their packaging that it's a water based. Um, water-based finish it's the enduro conversion varnish and there is they call it a catalyzer or a catalyst but it might be a crosslinker or a hardener or whatnot yeah i'm just not familiar with it yeah golly it it is expensive it's about 192 dollars a gallon oh my lord but that is what i'm finding that's what i'm finding online it, uh, 150 is about maybe the best price i was able to f find for those two parts whoo that is pricey that yeah. is pricey. Yeah. I think you could go. I think you would. I think you'd be just as good going with the General Finch's high performance um, for this case. Uh, that 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 just seems like a lot for a top coat uh, for for your project. In terms of uh, uh, finish, uh, maybe a super blonde. A, a super blonde has a little bit of ambering on it, but not as much. If you want to get something with a little bit less ambering, um, but me personally, I really like the amber a lot because I like the oil look that the amber gives you. Yeah. So that's what I well, like. Like. I, like on a cherry, I'll use garnet shellac. Garnet shellac. It, yeah, it gives it a nice red, deeper red color, so it's not pink anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that uh, General Finishes sells, I can't remember what they call it. But it's a oil infused water based varnish. I think it's Endurovar. Yes, Is that right. Yes, Is that I right? think it's Endurovar. Yep. So that's a water based finish that gives the appearance of a oil based finish. I tried it once, and I don't know if I a hundred percent agree with that statement from General Finishes, but it's not bad. It's better than just putting you know a water white finish of water-based finish on so if you want that color yeah if you want that color so yeah yeah all right back to you big guy uh, do you mean me because i'm brian brian's a big guy <laughs> at six, I think, at I think six seven six seven eight six eight whatever he is six eight two forty benching three fifty no <laughs> um <laughs> Minus minus one hundred and fifty pounds of each. Um, actually, we. Why don't you take the next question? Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is from uh, Schatz. I I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's uh, S C H A T Z. I don't know if that's a joke or not, but maybe it's not. Anyway, Alabama. As in, I just shats my pants. Yeah. <laughs> Alabama Woodworker said he has done half-blind dovetails where you cut through dovetails and add an eighth-inch piece on the front. Could you expand on your process for doing this, specifically adding the false front and getting it flush to sub-front sides? Thank you. So it, it, it's a fairly easy process. I mean, really, that's all it is, is I'm doing through dovetails like I would normally do through, through dovetails. And then I'm taking an eighth inch veneer that's oversized and I'm gluing that onto the front of the drawer. And then I used to do exclusively flush trimming on the router table, but uh, I, 
lately I've been doing it on the table saw because I feel like I get a little bit of a better cut and less tear out on the end grain side of that veneer. Now, for the most part, that doesn't really matter that much, primarily because it's, well, it's that eighth inch piece is pretty thin and it's glued to the front of the uh, the drawer. But that's that's basically how I do it. Uh, you know, I, I just do that. Uh, Guy, I know you've done a few dovetails here and there in terms of uh, uh, cutting them by hand, but with regards to doing it on a machine or uh, or a jig, I think you're doing half blind dovetails. Am I correct? Like, you, like um, you're not putting a false front on. I've I have done that before. Okay, okay. And the the reason that started, I don't know how long that's been around, but it's been around for a very very long time. Um, Cutting, if you're doing hand-cut dovetails, cutting through dovetails is a lot easier than doing half-blind dovetails. Yes. So it just made sense to, to take a veneer and, you know, just cut the, 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 the through dovetails and then put the veneer over the top of it. And it was a huge time saver. And I, I understand that. I did it uh, mainly for looks. Yeah. You know, instead of using a... a a piece of figured wood. I could just use the veneer because I'm all about the veneer. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a benefit as far as I'm concerned. I think it's a good idea. It's very easy to do, and yep. you don't even have to use like an eighth inch veneer. You can just put like regular veneer veneer over the top of it. That'll still work. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, it won't it won't give the appearance of half blinds, but at least it'll cover up the. The dovetails in the front. I'd probably go no no thinner than a sixteenth of an inch, actually. So, are you when you when you do that? I mean, are you doing a shop sawn veneer to get that veneer usually, or yeah, shop sawn, store bought. You, I mean, you can buy veneer yeah. in different thicknesses. Typically, for me, it's shop sawn veneer. But yeah. like like I said, I mean, you're not going to get the half blind look as much if you use a thirty second or a I'm sorry, a forty second. 140th of an inch veneer, which is, I think, commercial mm -hmm. veneer. Is that right? Yeah, 42nd of an inch. Yeah, the, the big benefit to doing the shops on and something I like to do is, is it gives me a, a lot of, um, oh, for lack of a better word, configurability on the grain matching. And I can use the specific things that I want. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We if you go with a thinner veneer on there, is there any risk of those through dovetails telegraphing? Telegraphing. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said I wouldn't go any less than a sixteenth of an inch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's back to you, Brian. <laughs> All right. This question is from Mickey at Broken Levy Woodworks. And He's got a question about sanding and everybody gets excited about sanding, which is why oh, I picked yeah. this one. I know, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> he says, I know how to sand through the grits and I know why to sand through the grits, but how long in general should you stay at each grit? Obviously higher grits are easy. I usually stay there until any major imperfections are smoothed out. But as I progress, I'm always thinking I should stay there for one more round especially at my final grit. 
Normally I just keep going until the piece feels nice and smooth and flat. So far that's worked for me. I'm sure I'm overthinking it, but I figured I'd ask the experts, Guy and we, what they do. I'm using an orbital <laughs> sander, by the way. Ouch. And well, I added the guy and we part to be fair to that was just self deprecating oh, okay. humor at myself. Um, <laughs> Mickey didn't say that. Um, so good, good question, Mickey. And, and the reason I, I picked this one is because I had a bit of a sanding revelation last week. Oh yeah. And it will not be a revelation to most of our listeners, but it was a <laughs> revelation to me. And I was sanding some, uh, floating shelves that I had made out of uh, ash. And I started at 120 because my planer was is in pretty rough shape right now. So needed to start at 120 grit to, to, to level some things out. And I was getting ready to hop up in grit. And I was like, you know what? I just got this extra LED shop light and it's about 36 inches long and it was just real cheap, but I happened to pick it up. And I was like, I'm going to plug this in and use it as a raking light and to see how this thing looks. And I turned it on and was appalled at how bad of a job <laughs> I had done standing at 120 grit. Like I had missed all kinds of stuff. And when I had held it up in the light, like just holding the, the shelf up and sort of looking down the, looking down the surface up at the light in the ceiling, it looked great. Yeah. And I put a rate, an actual raking light on there in a raking fashion and it just showed all kinds of things. So um, I recommend sanding until you've got consistent scratch pattern as revealed by a raking light. And at that point, then vacuum your surface off and then move up to your next grit. Um, Guy, what, what advice would you have about moving through the grit, the grits? Well, I, I don't use the raking light thing. What I do is I, I do what I call doing a course. So I'll normally start at like 80 to 100, and I'll do two to three courses over the top for the initial sanding. And what I mean by a course is kind of like you're mowing a lawn. You go left to right, right to left, left to right, overlapping your your patterns a little bit. I am not one of those guys that just goes haywire all over the place trying to get all these different areas because that will lead to an uneven finish job and it will also cause dips and, you know, hills and valleys in your sanding. So I'll do that. And then after that, as I start to progress up the grits, I'll do one, maybe two courses, but that's it. I do yeah. the bulk of the, the, the stuff with the lower grit or the higher grit, depends on the way you want to look at it. But the lower number grit, do two or three courses. Then I'll go from 80 to 100. I'll do two courses of it. And then, uh, then I'll go to 120. I'll do one, just one pass. Shoot. Boom, boom, left, right, left, right, left, right, top to bottom, and I'm done. That's it. Yeah. And then I'll, then I'll go up to, you know, 180, 220, and yeah. then I'm good. Yeah, same same thing for me. When it go, comes to the lower grits, I'm spending a lot more time on those lower grits to get out 
a majority of those imperfections. You just have to be careful. Right, right. Because you can create dips and you can create a more scratch pattern than you really are, are willing to deal with in the later grits. Uh, like, like I said, you just got to be careful. Uh, but for the most part, uh, I'm using my hand more so than actually, and my eyes, but I don't use a raking light. But could you explain, Brian, what you mean by raking light just for anybody that might not understand what that is? Yeah, so I I put the light just barely above to where it was barely above the surface of the wood so that the light was projecting or washing across the surface of the wood rather than having it above shining down. It was more shining across the yeah. surface okay. I was standing. And it, I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was like I was sign, sanding blind before <laughs> and, and turned that on. And yeah, there was part yeah. of me was like, oh, I wish I hadn't turned that on. Cause <laughs> do you follow a pattern place. when you do the sanding or do you just go all over the place? Uh, no, I follow a pattern. I do similar to what you described. I'll work okay. from one side to the other, kind of in a straight line, and then overlap, do a light overlap of that as I work my way back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I often see folks kind of dishing or edge jamming or edging their sanders. And yeah. I, I guess I never really understood that. Um, if a section needs more attention then the entire piece that flat surface needs more attention because you have to even all that out because if you don't you're essentially just gouging your material and i see that a lot and I, it just doesn't kind of make sense to me that maybe you just need to spend more time sanding the whole piece if that's the case if you're trying to get out that big of an imperfection we uh, have but a, then again, they also make hand planes and, you know, uh, what is it, uh, card scrapers card and scrapers. stuff for that type of sort of situation. I think that's a, I, I don't know, to me, that just makes more sense using the appropriate tool to do a larger amount of removal than using such a fine tool like a orbital sander. So, yeah, we have a we have a table in our break room at work. And the reason it's in our break room, we built it. And the reason it's in our break room is because the sanding sanding job that was done on it at the time uh, must have been before we had our big wide belt sander because <laughs> there were probably some uh, there was some unevenness from one board to the other in the glue up and the way we solved for that at the time was edging the sander in is what I'm guessing because it is noticeably lower along each of the joints than it yeah. is you know in the center of those boards and then it then it's stained a dark color and finished in satin so it's it's pretty, pretty, pretty obvious if pretty obvious, you know yeah. for us to look at. But the thing maybe is, most the people would look at it and say it's a beautiful table. But yeah, as a the thing is, we as woodworkers are overly critical, oh, especially yeah. of sanding. Yeah, and I am not of sanding. Overly mm. critical. Um, I don't get that granular about my sanding. I know Grain. what I have to do. Granular. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Just I, 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 I know what I have to do. I know the, the system I use works and it's fine. Yeah. Um, the finish I'm putting on is going to cover up a lot of stuff. Um, so I really don't worry about it that much. Yeah. Yeah. 
I hope that helps, Mickey. Guy, you got the last one, man. All right. So this question comes from Matt in Alabama. Oh. Do you know? Do you know Matt? Who? I probably do, but uh, I, I guess it just like a picture in my head doesn't ring a bell. Okay. But probably do. So it says, "Hey, fellas, I have a question about the Domino five hundred and seven hundred. What rule of thumb do you use?" when to use the 700 instead of the 500 when it's not an obvious situation other than the thirds of the stock thickness. Thanks for all your different points of view on how to tackle situations we find ourselves in, Matt, in Alabama. So we get this question every now and then, and myself, I've never owned a Domino 700 or the large Domino. I've only ever owned the 500. And the reason for that is, is I truly believe the 700 is more appropriate for things that are very large projects. Yeah. Doors, if you're going to be trying to do stuff like that, big, heavy projects yeah. would require it. Other than that, it doesn't really have that much of a use. Now, in the in the in the home hobbyist shop. However, in a production environment like we have at work, right, we went forever without having a DF five hundred, and all we had was the larger one, right. And we if that thing has just changed the way we do woodworking. I mean, yeah. there's no better way to put it. We don't have to add extra for mortises and tenons, and we just like cut it to the length we need it and pop a couple dominoes in there. Um, it's very speedy. I have always, and Brian will agree on this, I have always questioned the durability of those tables over a period of years. I don't think they're as strong as they would be as if we were using a mortise and tenon. Um, and it mainly has to do with the size of the aprons. We have, we, refuse to put aprons bigger than three inches on any table. And you can only pop one, two, you know, dominoes that are right on top of one another. And you're removing most of the material on the apron to put two in. So you're really only putting one domino in there. It's I don't think it's as strong as it should be. So we end up we end up putting a lot of uh, structural stuff underneath the table to make up for that. We put gussets in or forty five degree Things yeah. connecting the, the 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 aprons together, which is something I wouldn't normally do on any table because it's yeah. not necessary. But when you're doing it with the the larger dominoes, you almost have to. I guess it's a trade off. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Um, right. For me in my shop at home, I I don't build huge barn doors or anything that would require you know dominoes that big. If I'm building a big table, I'm doing mortise and tenon joinery. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. What about you? Who you do? You have both or just one? I I do have both, but I only got the seven hundred about a year ago, a year and a half uh, ago, year and a half ago. But here's the reason why. The only reason why was because I was making a huge conference table that had a very large trestle assembly. Uh-huh. Other than that, normal t- dining tables, it's been the 500 all the way. 
normal chairs and tables and side tables and end tables and cabinet small cabinet type deals it's always been the 500 now now that you have the 700 though do you find yourself using it more now that you have one i've only used it one other time and that one other time was an eight foot long table with a trestle assembly that had these big honking you know feet that needed that right that deep mortise or whatnot In most situations, I'm going to the 500. For most of my projects, I'm using the 500. Unless I'm building these big tables, right? Larger than eight foot long. You know, very minimum aprons, if no aprons at all, right? Those are situations that I'm using the 700. Other than that, I'm using mostly the 500 or I'm using my biscuit joiner, my lamello. Um, And... Again, the only reason why I bought the 700 was because I had a project, a very large project, a 12-foot-long table that required it. Other than that, I'm perfectly happy with the 500. Myself, I have never had a situation where I felt I had to have a 700. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Brian, you've got a 500, don't you? I do. I I do have the 500. Um. I've never, it could, it could just be that I, I haven't had a project that, that requires uh, the uh, a domino for, that only a 700 would be able to do, but I found the 500 perfectly sufficient for anything I've had to do. Now, if we wanted to, to compare and maybe call out some of the differences between the two, um, the, the, there is some overlap in the size of, I guess, in terms of the um, thickness or width of the domino, that where the DF500 can do up to an 8 and 10 millimeter, um, and the DF700 does an 8 and 10 millimeter as well, but it also does a 12 and 14 millimeter. The DF700 also has significantly more depth of cut, um, so you can use a much longer domino than what you'd be able to with the 500. The 500 maxes out at 50 millimeter long domino and the DF700 maxes out at 140 millimeter long domino. So um, I, yeah, I, I found the 500 to be uh, more than sufficient for the types of things I'm doing. We am curious, do you find the 700 more cumbersome to use based on the, the size and the weight of it? compared to the 500 or not, not really? Um, I would say not really, but I mean, if you're comparing the two, then obviously the 700 is a little bit more cumbersome. It's a heavier machine. I mean, the way I, so when I'm using my 500 and I know the audience can't see this, but like, uh, literally I'm just holding the front and I'm just using like three fingers and I'm just pushing forward. Yeah. I'm not like leaning on it. Right. Like I see some guys, yeah. some folks that they, grab around the the dom the domino and they're just like you know really like sort of manhandle i I don't do there that i'm I'm kind of coming from the back of the domino and i'm just using a couple of fingers and i'm pushing it forward the 700 you can't do that uh you kind of have to push with that handle because it is a, a heavier machine but i haven't found it like I guess I haven't found it more overtly cumbersome. I just use it a little bit differently in terms of the uh, ergonomics of how I use it. 
Yeah, there's some, there, yeah, there's there's some big differences between using the two, and I've used both extensively. the 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 big thing with the seven hundred, it, it it has a lot more features on it than the five hundred, as far as the 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 detents and things like that that you can set up on it. Um, it is, in my opinion, easier to use. The 500 tends to buck a little bit when you plunge it in. It can yes. move around quite a bit. The 700, it doesn't buck. It just, yeah. it's smooth as silk. Yeah. However, that being said, the weight of the thing is something to consider. Now, yes. I've mentioned this before in a production environment. There are times when I have spent literally two days doing nothing but plunging dominoes for 10 hours a day Ugh. Ugh. with the 700. The thing, after an hour of that, the thing starts weighing a ton. Yeah. It's very heavy. It's a big machine. It's a big machine. Yeah. So if you're going to be doing a whole lot of work, <laughs> be aware of that. Um, I, I still think that the 500 for most people, unless you have a particular use case for something that big, just get a 500 and you're fine. It's going to do everything you need it to do 90% of the time and it weighs less um, you know, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think, that, is that it for the questions? That's it for the questions. Oh, man, I was having fun. Let's take more. Let's take more. <laughs> I got kids I got to put to bed. <laughs> All right. All right. So what do we got going in the shop? Hui, what do you got going on, buddy? Oh, man. Well, I was gone all last week to California for work, so I didn't get as much done as I would have liked. But I've got all the stock milled for the doors that I'm making for this china cabinet. I feel like I keep talking about this china cabinet. I'll, I'll be ready for it to be done. But I, I've got all the stock milled. And guess what happened? As I was making the rails and styles, just milling out that stock. There was an earthquake. No. Um, Hurricane. I had made enough material to get two, four rails and four styles because I've got two doors. And... One of the styles, for whatever reason, just completely curled on me. And what's funny is that it came from the same stock as the other style. So in other words, I had like about seven inches of material and I split it in half. And then after I split it in half, I planed it and milled it again and edged it. And for whatever reason, that one piece that came from the same stock as the other style just curled up on me. So I ended up just making uh, a couple of, that that's what I did recently was make a couple of extra rails and styles. So I had extra. It, it happens, man. It does. Wood moves even when it comes from the same oh, yeah. stock, yep. like from the same board, just ripped in half. One did it and the other one was perfectly fine and flat and stayed flat. After I milled it. It's just the weirdest thing. And it's about a quarter of an inch. But like for that large of a door, 
You know, I just, I can't, I just can't have that, you know, like. No, you can't it, have it at all. No, like it's that. not going to correct itself when no. I assemble it all together with the coping <laughs> stick. Like, it's not going to happen. Just what, put like, on, just put on your bench and throw some weight on it. It'll be yeah. fine. Well, guess what? I tried that. I actually tried it. What, like I put a cantilever on there, like a lever on the center, and I tried clamping it down. And I said, I'll just leave it for a week and see if it corrects nah, itself. Just, it nah, didn't correct nah, itself. Nah. It didn't do it. So I was like, dang it. I, I do use it. weights sometimes when I'm gluing stuff up like that, though. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get so, that. Yeah. I get that. But like, yeah, I thought I could bend it back. That didn't work. Negative. didn't work at all. It just bent right back to where it was because it wanted to be there. Oh, and I also got uh, four pounds of shellac. I know that's a lot. I know that's a for shellac flakes. Uh, but there was a deal with shellac shack that if I did a bulk order and I went in with another coworker of mine, and if we do a bulk order, then you get a, a bulk discount. Oh, you bought eight pounds of shellac? Uh, no, six total. But mm-hmm. I, I kept four. So I got... How much Platina. was it a pound? Uh, a pound was about... 30 bucks 30 33 bucks it's not bad uh i think it ended up being 30 bucks with the discount uh, yeah. 33 dollars. anyway uh i got platina because i would like to use it as a toner because i'd like to add dye to it uh-huh. then i got two pounds of super blonde and a pound of ruby huh. which has a little bit of a red it. hue to it i've never used ruby yeah, yeah. And, and I only got Ruby because the China cabinet that I'm building, uh, the original piece has some red tones to it. So I think that'll help yeah. a little bit. But. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Sh- uh, Sean? <laughs> I'm sorry. Brian. Sorry. It's, <laughs> only, been it's only been six months. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm about halfway through a client build right now. I've got, I finished up couple floating shelves. I've got a desktop I need to build. Um, the entire project other than the, the cabinet carcasses and face frames will be done in ash. So I like working with ash. That's been, that's been nice rather than, um, working with maple or something like that, which is a lot less fun. Um, well, you're lucky you can actually get ash. I can't get ash anywhere here unless I really. Order. It's it's yeah. native here, so yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I no accidentally over ordered by like two times, so I've got a whole bunch of it sitting in my garage right now. And um, lucky you. So yeah, I'm probably just probably just sit on it, but um, I need to do more woodworking and less wood buying and wood collecting. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the two, the two go hand in hand, my friend. I don't know how you how you have the space to store it. I I, I built I actually just recently in my garage built uh, vertical lumber storage. Built a couple. I mean, it's really just a basic basic um, system on the wall there to to keep boards separated about every eighteen inches and a couple arms coming out that I can lean them up vertically, and then there's a, yeah, a control arm on the front that I lift off to to access it and keeps it from tipping out and f- crashing down. So yeah. I just use bungees. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. I use bungee yeah, boards. It probably would have been easier. <laughs> but <laughs> nothing easy fun. though. Nothing yeah. easy. Um, yeah. Guy, what about you? Nothing. I mean, it's, it's springtime, which basically means my wife won't let me do anything but work in the yard on the weekends. Uh-huh. If I attempt to do anything else, I get yelled at. There's so much to do. Why are you doing that? Uh, 
So, you know. Do you, do you enjoy the yard work? Oh, I absolutely hate it. I'd rather <laughs> stick knitting needles in my eyes. Well, I don't want right, any, any part here, of it. Here, I've got, I've got a mutually beneficial idea for you then. I do not want to build this desktop in my basement because it's nine and a half feet long. How about I bring the lumber over to your shop next week? And we can do a joint build together and I'll get you out of yard work and you can help me build a giant desktop. No, you won't get me out of yard work. You're going to be helping a friend. It doesn't matter. She's going to say, I'll talk to her. I'll talk to her. Good luck. I've never met her, but I'll talk to her. (laughs) Good luck with that. So that, that's pretty much it. I've got to get, I've got to get some stuff done, but I'm almost done with the major stuff in the yard. So I still have to, we're getting mulch. We're getting four yards of mulch delivered on Saturday, which is a, a, a favorite of mine. Yeah. And then I've got to power wash everything. I've mm. also got to do all the, the edging, which is a huge pain in the butt because there's a lot, lot of it to do hundreds and hundreds of feet of edging. to do. Oh. So all that has to be done. So once I get all that done, I'm good to go. You'll uh, start working on your 3D printer cart or whatever, cage, table? No. Mm-mm. Isn't that something that you said you wanted to do? No. I thought you were... All right, well... Well, maybe, maybe I did. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm old. I, I, I've changed my mind a lot. <laughs> so well, I think that's going to do it. And we'd like, left, we'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer your questions. So if you have woodworking questions and you'd like it answered, just send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found on just about all social media platforms as Guys Woodshop. Uh, what about you, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com, and all the links to my socials are on there, although I have not been very active as of late. So I apologize for that. How about you, Brian? I am not on your conventional social media, but you can find a few of my projects on simplecove.com at Brian Schmidt. All right. Very good, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Talk to you in a couple. Bye. Bye. Bye.